we're Carrie and Rhoda Morgan, and uh, we've been married as of yesterday for 27 years. Uh, thank you. It was awesome. Our daughters made dinner for us, and so the, we had two of them that were the chef and the sous chef, and then another daughter and her friend were the servers, and they got all dressed up, and they French drew little French French mustaches on their faces and, uh, you know, tried to speak with French accents, so it was really fun to have them celebrating our marriage, you know, and seeing that as a, as a good thing. But 27 years married, we have four daughters, three still at home. Uh, youngest is 13, oldest is 21. And our 19-year-old decided college was not in her path. So she's working and living at home right at the moment, but she's working on, you know, she's got a roommate in mind that she's going to move out with. So she's ready to be the independent one and uh, tired of school. So <laughs> so each kid has their own path. Our oldest is a junior in college, and uh, uh, but you know, it's a perfect fit for her, and, uh, but it's been, it's been fun to see. I work, I work full-time uh, essentially from home as a technology consultant. Rhoda works part-time at our kids' school, Grace Prep. Uh, I'm a, I was a missionary kid, and Rhoda was a pastor's daughter. So we come from we come from backgrounds that are not entirely uh, average, you know, or sort of exceptional experience in our own, you know, growing up and and uh, background. But and we've both been following Jesus since we were very young. So um, just uh, finding our way to love and follow the Lord over the years. And uh, so our goal today is just to talk to you about some of the perspectives we've gained as uh, parents of teenagers and as parents heading through the teenager years. And then, uh, uh, so let's just pray for a moment and then uh, we're going to get into more of the content of what we have to share. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your love is such that it never quits. You don't give up on us. Uh, When you've watched us stumble, when you've watched us wander, you uh, never shrugged your shoulders and turned away, but you kept pursuing us and you kept loving us. And I pray that you'd give us that same resolve as parents of teenagers, that you'd enable us to be like you, Heavenly Father, that just never gives up on the kids that are in our care, that you'd enable us to see past the bumps and see through the rough patches and to embrace who you've called them to be and who you've made them to be, and to see that even when they can't see it themselves. So I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your calling and for your great love that never quits. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, the teenage years, now I'll just say one thing. We gave you a little one-page outline, but we have a six-page version of that outline that we're going to give you at the end. So if you find yourself feeling like you need to write something down, don't write too frantically. Jot whatever notes you want to. But we're going to give you the six-page version to take with you in case you wanted to go back and review anything that we might have said. So it's a fairly detailed thing that we'll give you at the end. Um, So the teenage years are not something to be survived, but really an opportunity for us to guide our young people into the kind of people that we uh, hope that they will become. And uh, it's, it's a bumpy process, but if, if, you know, our goal is that our kids would have a heart for God, that they would be compassionate toward other people, and that they would develop admirable personal qualities. We, we wanted to see them become awesome people who love God and love others. And uh, you know, that's, a, that's a pretty lofty goal, and it's not entirely in our control. But we do know that in order, to, in order to see that happen, there are things that we can do and there are, th- there are attitudes that we can take that make that more likely. <laughs> we can't control our children's choices, but we can control what we provide them as they make those choices. So, um, so we're going to cover several different areas. And we're going to start with the, uh, you know, keeping the long-term perspective. Because if, if we're gonna if we're gonna see our kids through this whole process, we have to see past the end of this teenage thing. And then uh, the other the other important part is understanding what really constitutes normal things that happen in the teenage years. 
you know, if we don't really understand what normal is, we're going to find ourselves always angry about everything that happens. And so um, uh, understanding what's normal and then, and then what some of the dynamics are is important. Um, now, having talked about some of those, we really have to consider our hearts and the hearts of our children in the process. Because it isn't just about, like we heard earlier, it's not just about behaviors. It's about what's behind that and developing a heart that's not just going to see them through the teenage years, but developing a heart that sees them through all of life. And then the other thing uh, that we add to that is just a combination of being hopeful and being realistic. And we can't be just hopeful and, and imagine everything's going to be perfect, and we can't just be realistic and sort of be so pragmatic that we fail to look at the, the hope in every situation. Uh, and then the last thing is we're going to just share some of what we do. So we entitled that section, Stuff We Do. So it includes rules and patterns and things that we've set up in our household, uh, kind of just decisions we've made over the time to uh, try to make sense of that whole process of, of parenting our kids. So um, I really resonated with uh, what both Will and with what Eric were saying in our big session when they just said, there's, there's things we hope for and we want for our kids, and then there's what we do. And we all desperately would love a well-laid-out plan to follow. Um, I, I would love nothing more than to have formulas that just guaranteed it turned out <laughs> a certain way. But we don't have the benefit of that. And so uh, what we're going to do is just talk about the things we do and, and our perspective in, in the hopes that our children are just pointing in the right direction, knowing that God's grace and God's mercy is, is right there and comes along beside us. So the, the thing I wanted to start with that as, as I thought about parenting and what it really boils down to is two things I, I think are really important. Intentionality and consistency. And when I think about intentionality, I think about those of us who've grown up, grew up in a very different environment, in a different culture. We had a completely different growing up experience than our kids are facing right now. And as I think about my own children and what I'm doing, I cannot depend on those, those things the way I remember them. I, I can't just depend on um, everybody believing and thinking pretty much the same way I do and my family does. I can't depend on just sending them to youth group and to Sunday school and making sure they're hearing the Bible stories and they're learning what they need to do. I can't just depend on that they automatically know what's right and wrong in our home. If you're like me, that's sort of how I grew up. Um, there wasn't anything overtly taught or done. So as I'm, as I'm thinking about my own children, I'm realizing I have to do something different, and that's where this word intentional comes from. I have to be intentional. I have to do something so what, what does intentionality look like? It looks like talking to our kids about the things that are going on, not assuming that they know what our thoughts are on sexuality and abortion and the things happening in the world. And so what do we do? We might, might come up, I might have read something in an article or on Facebook or something, and I'll say, I read this. What do you think about that? And then we get into a discussion, and then I'm able to say, well, you know, what does God say about that? And what do we think about that? And so we get into discussions, and we quit assuming that they're going to know intentionality when it comes to discussion. Um, and what it, intentionality also has to do with what Eric was talking about in, in, as pertaining to the heart. We really have to understand there's a completely different worldview out there. Right. And we have to understand what that worldview is that is infiltrating every, every part of life. And our kids have to know what a biblical worldview looks like. So we have to be students. And, and I'm not saying I came into parenting knowing all this 21 years ago. Like many others, I'm just realizing this more and more as, as we get bombarded more and more. Um, one resource 
from the resource page that I did not put on there and I would strongly recommend if you want to write it down is How Now Shall We Live by Charles Coulson along with Nancy Piercy. Oh, sorry. So um, that is an excellent resource in talking about what is the worldview that's that's permeating our world right now, how to think about it and how to talk about it with our kids and helping our kids understand what is a biblical worldview. So that has to we have to we have to talk about the issues. We have to make sure our kids know God's word. It's and more than just I'm hoping that they're getting it at youth group and in Sunday school, but it has to be part of our home and a regular part of our home where we're bringing it up. What does that look like? It might be different for each of us how we how we approach it, but it has to come in. And we just have to keep telling them what God's love story is. You know, that God's not a big judge up there judging us and waiting to condemn us and he doesn't want us to have any fun and all that. But really, his story is an amazing love story and helping them see God's story as an amazing love story. So then the other one is consistency. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in another part. But those are two really key things we have to come to come to grips with and, and uh, have part of our parenting is intentionality and consistency. So when we think about the goals for our teens, one thing that Carrie and I have really tried to be about is thinking about what they're going to be like as a 25-year-old, as a 30-year-old, as a 40-year-old. So the things that we're doing and we're training and we're developing in them, we're, we have that, that in mind. <laughs> So as they're sitting around the table, we're trying to train them how to have conversation. Uh, We, you know, make sure that their phones are off and they know how to talk. Uh, What kind of roommate are they going to be someday? Do we just let them have their room a complete disaster? Because one day they're going to be a roommate to someone. Uh, So we've got like negative examples of things we don't want them to be. And then we have positive examples of things we want them to be. So we don't want them to be slobs. We don't want them to have terrible manners. We don't want them to um, be inconsiderate. Things we do want them to do is we want them to be servants, ready to help. Uh, so we incorporate things to make sure that they're doing those things now, not just saying, oh, they're a teenager. You know, they just, they got this. But no, you will come help me um, set the table. You will clean that bathroom. Um, that's, that's your job. Because one day you're going to be responsible for a house. One day you're going to be a roommate. One day you're going to be a spouse. So I need to help train and, and um, encourage these things in you. So, uh, you know, thinking about what our, our children are going to be in the future. Um, also, I mean, other words, uh, trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, all those things, there's ways in which we can talk about how to, how to help incorporate those things into our kids. Yeah, those, uh, those tw- I, we, I list in, uh, in the notes here, the, the 12 rules of the scout law. <laughs> I was a Boy Scout, and I learned trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent, right? <laughs> I mean, and I had to recite those in order to get mm-hmm. my next level. Every time you, you know, reach a certain level, you gotta, you got to know your stuff. But, you know, as I think about that, a lot of those are borrowed right from, you know, God's word. <laughs> They're really principles that are worthy to live by, worthy to call our children to. And so uh, having those kinds of qualities in mind as we guide them is, um, is key. One of the things, though, that while we keep big picture goals in mind, we have to remember always that each kid is unique. So... Um, you know, your kid won't be just like you, even though you'll see some similarities. They won't be just like your spouse. They won't be, they're not going to be just like anybody you've ever known, even though you might see some similar patterns in them as you see in others. Uh, so don't overlook their individual abilities. Uh, it's very easy to sort of create a, um, hey, we're all this, we're all this way in our household. You know, it's sort of like a, you want to create a feeling of a tribe. They're a part of a tribe. And like in our tribe, we do things this way. But guess what? Not all your kids are going to do the tribe things. And if you, if you expect them to and kind of almost filter down to only tribe 
like patterns are acceptable in this house, they'll feel like their uh, personality doesn't fit or the way God made them is not really uh, okay. So really looking at our kids and, and their individuality uh, enables us to parent them and guide them to be the best that they can be. So to be a student of each teenager um, and adjust our expectations to fit them. I mean, if we all, I know that it, it would have really uh, done our second daughter, Sydney, real damage if we had tried to hold her, her, expected her to do everything just like the first daughter, Josie, did. They're just very different people. They're both awesome people. They're just very different. And, uh, and they naturally compare with each other, but we had to sort of nip that in the bud and go, don't compare with your, your sibling because that's just asking for trouble. You're not made the same as each other. So, and if, when we bring that out, when we help them see it, then uh, it helps them and us. Uh, now, so thinking about the big picture, the, the, the headline is, you know, being intentional, being consistent, and thinking what kind of 25-year-old, what kind of 40-year-old you're hoping that they're going to become, and talking to them about that. Now, the second area is, what are some of the normal dynamics of adolescence? So, now, we are not psychologists, and we are not experts on, on this, but we can make observations, and we've learned a few things. So, we're just going to share some of those things that we've learned, and, the, and the, that are kind of Maybe that we wish we knew all along, and uh, and now you know now we're passing along. So uh, one of the f- factors is that uh, kids move through stages, and it's real destructive to shame a child for being at the stage they're at when you kind of wish they would be at the next stage already. Um, so understanding, you know, and, and, this, and this can be helped a lot by doing some reading and understanding what those natural stages are that children go through. I mean, one, for example, is the movement from concrete thinking to abstract thinking. Mm-hmm. So, right, concrete thinking sees things as right and wrong, sees things according to rules, sees things kind of black and white. Abstract thinking begins to understand motives, begins to look at, you know, um, the, the mixture of, of things that are going on and how something can be right and have something that's wrong mixed in with it at the same time and how, how can that be? And um, so uh, understanding that, uh, that there are stages that our kids go through and that we don't need to shame them for being not yet that other stage is, is a key sort of fundamental concept as the children are developing. Now, we all know that, but through the teenage years, the, the, the stages sort of become weirder because they might, um, they, they do sort of what I, I call looping, you know? They're like three steps forward and two steps back. I mean, one minute they're acting like an adult and the next minute they're basically sucking their thumbs. And, and that can be all in the space of one conversation, you know? <laughs> yes. So it, it's not even like a big loop, it's simultaneous and, and, it's, and it can be uh, challenging as parents. But if you realize, hey, they are... They're making progress, but it's not linear. They're kind of, they're making steps and they're like making surges forward to the next stage. Each kid can see a little beyond where they are, but they can't see all the way to the end, right? Because they're just, we're just not made that way. We develop morally um, as we kind of uh, gradually grow. So first thing is realize their stages. Second thing is that they're growing in a, in a process of going from dependent to independent. And we want to encourage them to be successful, independent adults. But we can't skip stages. Uh, and um, so what we've done is we've just sort of uh, realized that we have to give freedom that matches their responsibility. So if, they're, if they are showing signs of increased responsibility, of awareness, of the dynamics of what's going on in their friendship circles... We will extend more trust for them to, to act independently, to be on their own. So things like um, something we'll mention later, uh, you know, about independent activities, letting kids like go to the mall with a friend or something like that. Wow, why would we ever do that? Because we want them to have a successful independent experience. But when would we do that? 
when we think they've demonstrated that they're ready for a successful independent experience of going to the mall without a parent. You know, so all, all the, the process of dependence to independence has to be in our mind all the time, that we're trying to figure out where they are and where they're ready to go next. Um, and then uh, another one is that their self-awareness is very slow. They don't see themselves realistically and objectively. I mean, to them, it's they're very much in the process and they don't, they can't see themselves from the outside. So, for example, uh, one of our daughters had a real hard time being aware of her tone of voice. So she would say things to her sisters and we'd be like, whoa, 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 you sound like this. And she's like, but that's not what I said. And she would repeat what she thought she just said and it would sound so sweet and considerate. And we're like, well, the rest of us didn't hear that. You know, we heard this. And she's like, oh, you know, so, so frustrated. You know, first defensive and then frustrated. And, and then, you know, so it's been quite a problem. So now if we were just angry with her, instead of saying she, she ha- is self-awareness, you know, deprived. Uh, deprived <laughs> right. This stage is deprived of self-awareness. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're very self-conscious, but they're not self-aware. So... Anyway, helping them to see, well, this is how you're coming across. Oh, really? Yeah, that's really how you're coming across. You know, sort of developmentally rather than why are you, you know, it's like fighting back against them. We're saying, whoa, you know, if you could hear yourself from this side, you wouldn't do and say what you just did and said. There's another one that we, I found, I came across an article at some point. And it was saying, if you feel like your kids just forgot everything you ever taught them, there's science that explains that, <laughs> yes. right? That there's actually yeah. something chemical in their brains when these, all these hormones are flying through. And, they, and they've done studies, and they actually did tests, you know, like ability tests. And take a kid who, and they tested him when they were 10 years old, and they tested him again when they're like 13, and they actually couldn't do some of the very things that they could do when they were 10. They actually lost certain abilities and certain, you know, um, you know attention, uh, paying attention to certain things. So, so the science says that they actually are, you know, enduring a change that's a debilitating change. And so here they're, we're all going along thinking that they've learned what they've learned and that they've got all this under their belt. And then all of a sudden they're back. You know, we have to like reteach them things that... They knew very well a few years ago. So, I mean, the science stands behind that. And uh, so uh, hormones cause amnesia. <laughs> so says science. You know, n- another, another big factor is social adjustment. Uh, you know, we all know that there's a lot that's going on. But one of the things that, um, that uh, we have to consider that it's very stressful for them to sort out each of those social dynamics. You know, it's hard being popular. It's hard being unpopular. It's just hard in different ways. And neither of them is right or wrong. Popularity is fleeting. And, you know, we know, we, as adults, we know that it doesn't count for much 10 years from now. But right now, it's everything. But, you know, so, but if we can realize that, um, that it's stressful to them to be dealing with that, then we can counsel them as they deal with it. And, uh, and not just worry, you know, not just, uh, or, or even worse yet, shame them for not being, you know, the popular one or, the, or whatever it might be. <clears throat> and, a, and a wide range, I mean, shyness, their looks, their athletic ability, romantic attraction, a lot of these things are beyond their control. But they have to deal with the consequences of them. And it's hard. A uh, couple of other things to keep it moving here. One of them is, you know, you've probably heard where the word sophomore comes from. It's the combination between the two words soph, mean, which meaning, sophos meaning wisdom, and moron, you know, moron, which means stupid, right? So, yeah, it's a wise fool. So the word sophomore means wise fool. And we have one. Yeah, we have a sophomore. We've had two previous sophomores. And I can tell you, Every time the kid hits 15, they at one at the same time yeah. think they know everything and everything seems to get by them. Like, I mean, like they're making mistakes left and right. 
but they think they've no. got it wired. It's just like, um, you know, it's almost like clockwork. You're like, happy 15th birthday. Here it comes, you know. <laughs> and, um, uh, but the, the idea is that, you know, by the time we're 15, we are capable of a lot. And we want to do all that. We want to drive. We want to, you know, take responsibility. We want to make our own decisions. We want to choose our own whatever activities or movies or whatever. But, um, but at the same time, that knowledge is incomplete, even though it's much larger than it used to be. There are big gaps in that, that wisdom, even though there's wisdom. And, um, and, you know, even though things feel black and white to a certain degree to a 15-year-old, like they're really sure that they know what's going on, we know better, you know. So the hard part is to be, um, to help uh, kind of counsel them without saying, you don't know what you're talking about. You know, you, you're not capable, you know, you're not a grown-up yet, you're not an adult. I mean, we don't need to rub their noses in what they're not because they're really on the verge of becoming all that they, they will be. But, um, but somehow uh, the key is to, is to know that they are the moron part while they think they're the wise part, right? The, and that's our job to kind of hold that in our hearts and minds while they're going through it and help them become more and more wise and to put away the foolish parts of being a sophomore age person. And then the uh, last couple of things, we also found that birth order has, you know, is really something worth studying <coughs> and just to understand what some of those dynamics are. I mean, firstborns typically identify with parents. It's not always true. These are not rules. They're just patterns. Firstborns naturally relate to adults. Secondborns are like trying to get attention and by contrast with the firstborn. So they compete with them, they refuse to do the things that the firstborn will do, or they, they refuse to try to be the best at that because they don't want, or they'll compete with them head on, and they try to, you know, supersede the firstborn. It's, it's different, but there's always that natural competition between first and second. And, um, but then the middle kid, which might be the secondborn in some cases, typically is going to be sort of the mediator if there's a third one that comes along, right? So they're they're sort of playing it cool, and they're figuring, they're watching how everything's happening at the other extremes, and then the baby comes along, and you know what? They don't have little siblings, and everybody's kind of looking out for them, and they feel a little different than the rest. And we've observed all those things to be true in our family for. It's just been um, fascinating to see, but understanding that just that is going on is right. key. Yeah. Just keeping that in mind mm-hmm. and, and knowing that it's happening can help us be just a little bit more sensitive and help us uh, love and operate and give them attention the way they, where they're positioned in the family. So Yeah, mm-hmm. so the, the littlest one might need uh, a little bit of help to sort of feel like they're really part of things because they feel like they're dragging behind everybody else. And some we've even talked to some of the older ones and said, you know, your little sister's, you know, she doesn't get the way you guys joke. She doesn't get the way you guys talk. So do what you can not to leave her out so much, you know? So anyway, it's another big one that we've discovered and we talk about all the time is love languages. And if it's not something that you've kind of studied and learned about, I mean, I'm sure there's no rule, but there's a strong pattern that says there's like five different love languages. You know, there's gifts, there's quality time, there's touch, there's acts of service, and what's the one words I'm leaving out? And words of encouragement. And so we've figured out that our kids are not all like us, and that we aren't even like each other, and that really has helped us understand why we're not connecting with certain kids. If they're not getting the kind of feedback they need in the form that they need it, it doesn't feel like love to them. And the, the challenge of love languages is to love people the way they perceive love, not the way we perceive love. So if I, am a, if I love to receive gifts and I give everyone gifts and they don't like them or they don't appreciate them, why is that? Well, it's because I'm giving my own love language and not theirs. So, And uh, last thing is... Um, in this kind of normal dynamics section is gender stereotypes are usually not entirely true, right? So uh, one of the, you know, you, you, we may think that girls do, 
act one way and boys act another. But that just isn't always so. And having four girls, we don't have the contrast between guys and girls in the household. So, you know, I'm sort of the I'm sort of the token guy. So I, in fact, will sometimes point that out. If I do something that's really obnoxious and my girls are like, Dad, whatever, you know? And I'm like, hey, you don't have brothers, so I got to at least give you some feel as to what to expect from guys, right? I say not all guys are going to do all guy things, but, you know, just learn to live with it, right? Because I'm not going to become a female in order to make you happy. But but hopefully you'll understand a little bit where I'm coming from. Um, But uh, the key, though, is, is to look for... You know, some of the biggest damage that is done to uh, young people is when their parents don't accept who God made them to be and condemn them as being less than who they are because they don't fit whatever that mold is. And I mean, I've known a lot of homosexual uh, guys through my relationships in the church over time where they and their consistent story is. My father had really clear ideas about how things ought to be, and I didn't match that image. So I was considered not really a a man. And so they went and found attention elsewhere. So our ideas, our preconceptions about stereotypes, uh, especially regarding the definition of what is male and, and what is not male, that seems to be the hardest one that's being hit the hardest by our society. Um, it's really important that we not try to force our kids to fit a pattern, but to look at how God made them and celebrate whatever is in there. So those are just some of the dynamics of adolescence, you know, that we've observed that seem to be, you know, really, really worth noting. Mm-hmm. Are there any clarifying things on that? Teenagers? Yeah. So, turning our attention now to uh, kind of a third area, the heart of the heart matters. Um, you know, uh, when Jesus in John one fourteen, Jesus is described by John as coming from the Father, full of grace and truth, and that pair of terms has just really stuck with us. Grace being not only the power of God, but also the uh, you know the uh, the ability to love other people, right? So grace is sort of focused on others and focused on what God's doing in this world. Truth, however, is, is being loyal to God's absolute holiness and purity and truth. And the trouble is, is we can fall into the pit if we are so truth-focused that we forget to be gracious, or we're so grace-focused that we forget to be truthful. Mm-hmm. And our society is suffering because of the, the you know, indecision between those and churches often suffer too Mm -hmm. whenever we're sort of all about Mm -hmm. grace or all about truth but not holding both up but the same is true in our households Mm -hmm. and so uh you know living a life that holds tightly to both of those is important but in order to do that um and and as we live in that one of the biggest things is to understand our own hearts and um and the hearts of our children So motives and emotions are very important considerations whenever we're dealing with dynamics in our house. So one of our big conversations that seems to happen over and over again is, you know, well, she said this and she did that. And I said, well, wait a second. Now, you're ascribing motives to that person that you don't even know. You don't know what's going on inside their heart. You did hear their words and you can hear their words, but... You know, you need to find out what the motives are before the conversation is complete. Or you can say, hey, that person doesn't know that you had this motive. They only heard your harsh words. So you need to make your words match your motives. You know, so we talk about motives. And the other thing is emotions. We often, um, you know, the thing that uh, emotions are signals of something that's wrong. They are themselves not the, the most important underlying thing, right? The, um, the thing that's behind the emotions is what we focus on. We say, whoa, big emotion happening? What is that signaling? Not, oh, big emotion happening, let's express it, because that's the best thing to do with emotions. No, the best thing to do is find out where it came from and, and address it. 
So um, that was a big one for me when my two oldest were, uh, I was just reaching like a fever pitch of frustration with something that they had done. And I was actually enraged and speaking to them in a tone of voice that was just rage-filled. And, and I, all of a sudden, I heard myself in this room with my two daughters. And I looked at their eyes and saw how afraid they were of me at that moment. And I, now my dad had operated that way, kind of, a, you know, really a high level of anger, rage, and, uh, and it really caused suffering to my, my siblings. I didn't manage to dodge all that by just being really well-behaved. But um, the uh, but what I learned in that process was our kids don't they don't understand our emotions they don't they're not responsible for how we feel and their actions may trigger emotions that we have we're responsible for figuring out how our where that's all coming from and dealing with the underlying thing and for me I just needed to train them better so that they would know what the right thing is to do, and I wouldn't be so frustrated and angry. But I had to deal with my emotions and figure out where that was coming from. And it was coming from my focus on myself. So um, that, and that, the last thing to mention there is, uh, with the heart of the matter, is we've really got to learn to uh, ask for and give forgiveness because we are all going to stumble over our weaknesses. Um, yeah, that's definitely one thing we've 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 tried to model and teach in our home is to be able to come to the person and say, "I'm sorry," and and talk about what the thing is. Being able to give words to that exact thing that I'm sorry that I said those words harshly and that they hurt you. Will you forgive me? And as you heard in our general session too, through Will. Being able to do that and model that is really, really key. And it's been neat to see our older ones doing that more unprompted. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to train them to do that. And not, you go say sorry to your sister. Not that. But what does it look like to say sorry? Okay, let's, let's talk about that. How do we do it? What do you say? You know, can you respond back to them? And, and then pretty soon it happens naturally. And that's a real, that's a real thrill. Yeah. <laughs> Let's um, let's skip down to here. Yeah. Is it okay? Um, just when we talked about consistency at the beginning, consistency really comes from training and consequences. And if you're going to say you're going to do something, the key is to follow through on what you say you're going to do. That's consistency. And in our home, we've really tried to emphasize first-time obedience. That way, we don't get to a fever pitch of emotion because a child hasn't done something. If I've asked you to do something once, and, and if it's not done, then this, then that, then this should happen. <laughs> right? Not, didn't I tell you to do that? Now go do it, and they didn't do it again. I've, now, I've told you three times to go do that. In a sense, I have just trained them to not listen to me until I've said it four or five times and I'm enraged and mad and can't figure out why they're not doing it. But if I've learned to do it the first time, now this usually happens when they're smaller, but I I don't want anyone to get discouraged if we haven't done that because what we can do is we can come back to our kids and say, I just realized I'm, I have not been consistent in this area, and I apologize. I, we need to be about this, and I'm trying to help you become a better person, and someday you're going to be an employee. Someday you are going to, to be in the workforce. Someday, And when your boss tells you to do something, you need to, be, you need to do it the first time. So I just want you to know that these things we're doing is to help you become a better person. So I apologize, I haven't done that, and now we're going to do this, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and then to be consistent. And the, the consequences really need to match the infraction of what's happened. Mm-hmm. A lot of times uh, something will happen in there. You've lost your phone, and you, you're grounded now for two weeks, and, you know, that, you, know you, you, get, you get this big, huge punishment that happens instead of, you know, that happened, and now you're going to, you, this is going to happen. Make, make sure it matches the, the severity of whatever has happened in your home. Um, and we usually try to relate it to the thing that 
Like, you know, usually kids disobey because they want something and they're taking some sort of shortcut or breaking a rule to get it or right. So if the thing that they're wanting is the thing that they lose, that's yes. the most natural consequences, right. Right? right? It's like you throw a tantrum to get attention. Mm-hmm. What should you not get? Attention. Right? Right. <laughs> so we ignore a tantrum, ignore the person throwing yeah. a tantrum until they want to come back into normal social behavior. Mm-hmm. The same is true with just about any misbehavior. If the, if the, if the rule was broken because they're you know, because it's focused on, uh, you know, uh, something that they wanted to do, well, they're not going to get to do that thing. If it's something they wanted to have, they're not going to have that thing, as opposed to completely unrelated things. You know, you wanted yeah. this, I'm going to take away that. Right. So it feels like it's it's natural mm-hmm. so, as much as possible. And, and then there's, the, and then it changes, you know, based on age and, mm-hmm. and, you know, I'm obviously not my 19 year old, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't have that same authority, although she lives under my house, you know, there's certain things, but I'm, I'm not going to talk to her the same way or have the same expectations I have for her as my 13 year old. So there has to be an adjustment based on age and, and what's happening in their life too. Um, also there's just parental will. There's, there's things that we've said and made rules in our home that, they understand. I, I said, we've said, when you go to the mall, you may only be with these people that you've told me about, and you may not meet up with anyone else. And, you know, there's certain there's parameters that we have put on. Well, if they decide to break that, they can't say, oh, well, you didn't tell me that. Right, right. You know, no, that was, that was understood. Mm-hmm. And so I do have the right to give you consequences. You don't, you don't have permission to tell me, oh, you didn't tell me this time that I couldn't do that. That's a known thing, and so therefore there's some consequences. So we have, we've um, just set those kinds of things up in our home. Uh, that's Good. So, uh, you know, really the motives matter in, in when, as we're, so now you've, you focused on the, the consequences, but one of the key things that we learned when we were very early parents, but it is just as true as, when they're teenagers, is that uh, consequences don't make sense unless you've provided training at the front end, right? So if you if you haven't shown kids and explained and shown them what you want them to do, mm-hmm. having consequences for not doing it mm-hmm. is irrational, right? So we don't want to make them read our minds. Yeah. We want to tell them our minds mm-hmm. and then expect them to meet those consequ- mm-hmm. those those expectations. So if mm-hmm. con- expectations are clear, consequences naturally flow from it. Otherwise, they just feel like we're random. So, um, some of the stuff we do. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just, uh, we're going to run through a few things. Rules in our house uh, for next few minutes here. Um, rules in our house. If it isn't fun, it isn't called fun if it isn't fun for everyone. That's That was a very early rule we set up. Oh, I was just having fun. No, well, your sister wasn't having fun. So that's not called fun. That's called being mean. <laughs> All right. But that's true when they're older too, right? It, it, just the fun and the meanness gets twisted a little bit. You know, sarcasm and that kind of thing can be hurtful uh, even when it's not physical pain. Um, everyone cleans up after themselves, but it's a pleasure to offer to help, right? Mm-hmm. So if the expectation is you take care of yourself, then every time you help somebody, it feels like a gift. So it's, it's kind of, that's our, our app. Attitude. Uh, another one is the word stop is never to be treated as a joke or a game. So when I hear they going, oh, stop, stop, whoa, whoa, whoa. The word stop is sacred. You never use stop in a game. If you want to say don't, don't, that's fine. But once you say the word stop, it is over, screech, halt, bam, the, the doors just fell down, right? The game's over, whatever it was, when the word stop comes out. So everybody knows that's, that's a safe word. And we have a recently instituted one, mm-hmm. um, no TV for you as long as there's any piece of clothing in your room that isn't where it belongs, right? <laughs> you like that one, like right? that one. So they're like, oh, it only takes me five minutes to clean it up. No problem. Go clean Take it up. five minutes now. <laughs> five minutes less watching TV. If uh, your room is clean, then everybody's happy. Handling money. Uh, we've set up, now some people don't do allowance and some people do. We're an allowance house and that's because we, uh, allowance has a purpose and it's to treat them, to train them to handle money and to plan for the future. 
and to fulfill their responsibilities and balance responsibilities with desires. Because that's the hardest part about money is knowing that there's things you have to do and then there's things you want to do, right? So uh, what we've done is uh, for the first through fifth graders in our household, they get 50 cents per week per year that they are old. So a five-year-old gets two and a half dollars a week, right? A 10-year-old gets five dollars a week, right? So we just do the math, right? So they know they're always going to get a little bit of a raise, 50 cents. uh, No, I'm sorry, five-year-old. I got that wrong, didn't I? 50 cents per year. Five-year-old gets 250. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And a 10-year-old gets $5. So, and then once they hit sixth grade, we go to the monthly plan. And then it's per grade level. So then they get $5 per grade level per month. So a sixth grader gets $30 a month. A 10th grader gets $50 a month. And they get it at the beginning of the month and they have to plan what they're going to do. Now, how do they spend money? Allowance pays for anything that they want that we don't automatically pay for. So we only pay for stuff that's required by school, required by sports, and required by church. And if they want anything else, they've got to pay for it. So they're going, I want that candy bar. Oh, well, do you have any money? I want to go to a movie with my friends. Great. Do you have any money? You know, I want this new kind of shoes that just came out, or I want an iPod or whatever it is, you know, uh, you know, where's your money? All right. So did you save it? Oh, you spent it all. Too bad. I guess you're going to have to wait. You know, and maybe earn some extra money and then eventually get this thing that you want. Oh, you don't like the plain jeans we're buying you? You want those cool jeans that everyone's wearing? Well, we paid the 20. We'll pay the 20. You pay the extra 30 to turn them into $50 jeans, you know? (laughs) Oh, I don't know if I want to do that. I don't want to do that either. (laughs) Not my money. (laughs) They've become very pragmatic shopping for clothes because we don't buy special clothes. We only buy necessary things, right? So, um, and then tithing, we have not forced them to tithe. We tell them that we tithe, we encourage them to tithe, we help them understand how much a tithe would be, but we have not forced them to do that because we really want that to be a decision they make out of their own heart for God. And we've noticed that our children that are getting older are tithing more than our younger ones, Mm -hmm. but but they're doing it because they've decided it's the right thing to do. And so, anyway, that's just kind of how we do that. And we expect them to do all the chores we ask them to do without complaining. Now, there's some things we may pay extra for, but basically, if they live here, they work here, right? So that's the way we all operate. And, uh, and sometimes we'll charge them cash penalties. We'll go, look, you've been leaving this around the house. Next time I see it, it's going to cost you. you know? And those things tend to disappear, right? So we will, it'll, you know, as they see the money change hands, all of a sudden the motive goes up. We give the kids a debit card at the age of 13. Now, there's a a site that's on the handout we'll give later called upside.com where you can get free debit cards, costs you nothing. And so I'll put like $10 of their allowance on that debit card every month and then they can take their card and swipe it and they start understanding, you know, that money disappears just as quickly with a card as it does when it's cash in your hand. And then when they turn 16, they can get a bank account and, you know, checking account and actually start managing it that way. And then we link, if they have like an iTunes account, we link it to their debit card. So if they're, you know, 13 years old, they're paying for a song, they just paid for it. And I don't have to, you know, do the transaction with them and, and that's handled by, by them. So um, one of the things that I'll mention related to that, that I was actually, I was going to just say out of order, is with regard to music choices, uh, until they're 13, none of our kids get to choose their own music without our supervision. So the way we do it is, you know, they, they, you know, if they have a music device, um, I say, okay, you go choose the songs you want. You go look up the lyrics on the internet, and then we're going to sit down and read those lyrics together and have a discussion about what's in those songs. <laughs> and I'm like, and because you and your friends might listen to this music, and I don't want your songs to be teaching you or them anything that's just way off the charts. Now, Songs can acknowledge human weakness, but it can't promote it. And so that's so I'll sit down with them and go, you really want to have a song on there that says, I'm going to whatever, whatever, whatever? And then they're like, well, it's great music. <laughs> I'm like, no, it doesn't matter. You learn it all. So you gotta, you got to you know, cut it loose if it's really going to be influencing you badly. And so then so I, I will work with them through all their song selection up until they're around 13. And then 
we let them start making those choices. So mm -hmm. that's kind of the way we've handled that. Let's just touch on phones, because mm -hmm. um, since that's just a huge thing, and I was just struck with this the other day when I was substituting, and the teacher, you know, lets them when they're all done their work look at their phone, and I just looked out at this sea of people just on their phone, and I just felt this gut, my gut drop, and I just thought, man, we got to be careful with phones and using phones. So in our home, we have definite rules, and we've been training our kids what to do. They are not allowed to be on their phones when they're riding in a car with people. You just, you have to be in conversation. You need to learn to interact. Uh, never phones at the table. Uh, we've instituted the phone has to go on the on the uh, general table at 9.30 and no more texting any phones at all with anyone. They need to be out in the open with us. We've also uh, really tried to encourage them and help them see that personal relationships are really important and learning how to talk and communicate with each other face to face is really important. So to, to set up these boundaries and to have these guidelines in our home isn't a punishment, it's really to help them be better people and be better friends and be better relationally uh, as, as they go along. We also have, we've set up, Carrie's set up uh, safety devices on their phones. Um, when we're with other people, they're not allowed, allowed to be on their phone. Am I missing any of the... We, it's just really important to know that you have permission to set up parameters of when they can be on their phone and when they can't. And that's okay. Even, you know, phone-free, technology-free weekends that you put it away and we make sure we play games and we, enter, we enjoy each other they know that that's possible and that really is where relationship really comes from. And the one other thing I would add to that is we always know the passcodes for all our kids' phones. And I explain it to them like this. I'm like, look, I own that phone, right? I, I and the phone company are, are working together to give that device to you. It's not yours, really. And, um, and so I'm responsible for it. And if something happens, I need to know how to unlock it and, and take control of it, right? So I need to know your passcode all the time. Well, what that kind of does is it lets them know that anytime I wanted to, I could look on their phone and see what's been going on on there. So we don't frequently do that, but we have the power to do that. And I think one thing we've been acknowledging is we need to more systematically get onto our kids' phones and just see what they've been up to, see what their mm -hmm. conversations are like. So that even if we don't go back and go, what was this on your phone? You can just know that that's happening and begin influencing it. And that's a difficult one to to balance, but um, nonetheless, I think it's important. I think we'll need to cut it off here.